I'm Maggie Kelly, and this is Parent Kind, the show where I investigate the parenting experience from every angle possible. Each episode, I'll hunt down juicy stories from a new topic, tackling all the big stuff sex, body image, mental health, and everything in between. Thanks to our sponsor at Body Catalyst. Now, let's get started. So here's a topic you've probably thrown around with your friends over a glass of wine more than once, monogamy, fidelity, or even more exciting, infidelity. Talking about people cheating or wanting to cheat or being a cheater, it's kind of this pillar of adulthood, one of the last remaining no-nos as a grown-up. I'm personally really curious about the construct of monogamy. Ever since I can remember, I felt like it was some weird requisite of adulthood. But why? Why do we hold the ultimate standard of being a good person and a good partner as being monogamous? Who decided that? I think what irks me about this the most is the concept of settling down, you know, like shutting off parts of your body and mind that as humans can't really be shut off. It's like saying to someone, don't look at the colour blue anymore. Just don't look at it. Doesn't exist. But you can't help it. I understand as someone in a loving relationship that the desire to be romantic with others, it waxes and it wanes. Most of the time, you don't want to do that. You're not even looking for it. But then maybe you'll meet someone and think, what if? In recent years, terms like polyamory and ethical non-monogamy have become way more common than ever before. It's like society is waking up to the idea that committing to one person for the rest of your life, amen, is maybe not super healthy for everyone. Becoming a parent really started to make me scratch at this concept even further, because when you become a parent, your romantic and sexual identity really takes a hit. And for a lot of people, that can create a buildup of pressure that blows out into a behavior that, and I'm not gonna call it bad, but it isn't great. I am, of course, talking about affairs or cheating. We don't expect parents to behave that way, but guess what? They do. So today's episode is all about looking at two sides of the same situation. And that situation is a person gets married, a person realises they don't like monogamy, and a person takes up with a new lover. But that's where the similarities end, because these two stories could not be more different. In the first story, you'll hear from a mom in the UK who found out 17 years into her marriage that her husband had actually married somebody else while still married to her. And that someone lived just 100 miles from her home in the UK. She tells us how she uncovered his secret life and what she did next. But then you'll hear from a Melbourne sex educator who met her current boyfriend while still in a relationship with her partner and the father to her two kids. She's polyamorous, so they actually all live together. Partner, boyfriend, kids, all under one roof. And pretty happily, too. The difference between these two stories is honesty. And as you'll soon see, when it comes to love, that makes all the difference. Story one, Eve and the Original Sin. Imagine the worst story of cheating you've ever heard. Okay, 
Now time's up by a hundred, no, a thousand. This story is one I just can't wrap my head around still. It's a kind of harrowing tale of deceit and bastardry of the highest order. And at the center of this story is a woman who decided that she was not going to take it lying down. Meet Eve Gibney. My name is Eve Gibney and I'm located in Liverpool in the UK. In her early 20s, Eve moved to Nigeria from the UK as a nurse. Here she met and fell in love with Morris. I was working for the Foreign and Commonwealth Office as a nursing officer and I was posted to Lagos, Nigeria um, on a three-year tour. Um, And he arrived working in the oil and gas industry, working for an Italian company. He arrived the same week and we met the very next week um, in a social club. Really hit it off. In a way, I sort of felt it was like love at first sight. I looked across the room at him. He looked across the room at me um, and it was like, do I know this person? He came over and asked me if he knew me. Um, And years later, I said that was, you know, such a good chat up line. And he said, but it wasn't. I honestly thought I knew you. And I said, well, exactly the same. I thought I knew him too. And the fact that we hit it off so well immediately, um, and we were married a couple of months later. So it was a real whirlwind romance. Yeah. Right from the start of their relationship, distance was a constant companion. For almost a decade, Eve stays in Nigeria and Morris takes on different contracts around Africa and the Middle East. He has a succession of different jobs, sometimes working in other parts of the country, but always sort of, you know, home at weekends or, you know, um, always seeing each other. And that was really how our marriage began, not always being together 24-7. But that suited us because we both had careers. We were very career driven. um, And I was also very family driven. I'd gone out to Lagos with my four-year-old son, Josh, as a single parent. He made it known to me within literally the first 20 minutes of meeting him that he also had a daughter um, back in the UK who prior to coming to Nigeria, he would see every weekend. And coincidentally, they were just less than a month apart, his daughter and my son. So when we did come together as a family and when she came to join us living in Nigeria with us, it was fantastic because we already had a ready-made family. And then three years later, um, we had Seb, who was our son. When the kids reached their teenage years and were preparing for their school leaving exams, it was decided that Eve would return to the UK with the children and Morris would remain abroad in Oman in his oil industry job. It was about three years into this arrangement that things began to get a bit wonky. It started to change. So in July 2011, he went to Oman to take up a job that he was very reluctant to do, but there was no other jobs available. So we'd agreed that he'd do six months, maximum a year, come home. And at that point, we'd draw a line and he would just work sort of doing consultancy from home. And it was an end of the overseas work. So he stays. Eve travels over to celebrate their 17th wedding anniversary and that Christmas... Morris says he won't be coming home. He's got a big oil project out in the desert. No reception, won't be able to get in touch for at least a week. Yeah, it was disappointing for Eve, but not exactly abnormal. But when his two-day trip turns into six days of no contact, Eve felt something wasn't right. 
I felt like there was a bit of a distance between him and the family, you know, us as mum and kids, that something had shifted, something wasn't quite the same, and I couldn't put my finger on it. And when I questioned him about it, he'd had a bit of a history of poor mental health, and he stressed it was his mental health. You know, he'd been looking for another job, he couldn't find one, he couldn't come home without having something to come home to, sort of work-wise, so he was having to stay on. And he portrayed his life in Oman as being very unhappy. Morris leaned in hard to this story of being depressed. In fact, he pinned all of his behaviour on it, the reduced communication, the mood swings, the long trips away, short temper. And Eve, the ever-loving wife, just made space for it. I would extend the boundaries and I would be sympathetic and indulging because, you know, you just want the best for someone when they've got poor mental health. So for most of us, you might be thinking that the writing was on the wall. Long trips away... Last-minute date changes, dwindling communication. Sure, if you live with someone, these would be major red flags. But 17 years into a marriage that was almost entirely conducted long distance, it just wasn't that weird. Eve says that right from the beginning, when it became obvious that Morris would be overseas a lot, they had this chat, you know, they sat down and they confirmed, yes, monogamy was the way it was going to be, no other people. We had a really, really deep-rooted trust in each other, you know, to remain monogamous, to remain just as a couple with no additional sexual encounters or anything like that. We were, we were, also I believed, of course, faithful to each other. And I didn't have any reason to doubt that because we had this trust. In fact, Eve says that their friends would often look to their relationship as something to aspire to. They had freedom, they had trust, but most of all, they had this amazing friendship. I thought we were happily married, and friends have actually said this, you know, um, and publicly, that they were envious of our relationship because we were so close to each other. Um, and we were in constant contact. We would be emailing. I would wake up every day if he was away to an email. We would ring each other every day. We would text throughout the day to the point where I used to think, oh, for goodness sake, leave me alone. I'm too busy to keep texting you. But that's how, in, you know, that's how intense the relationship it was. But with the onset of Morris's apparent depression, this seamless working relationship stopped working. And pretty quickly, it became quite terrible. At this one particular day, he was planning to spend the day with Seb. And um, I challenged him very early on in the morning about the depression. And he became very violent and very aggressive and had me pinned up against the kitchen door, at which point then I knew that, no, <laughs> this is the end. Um, and then bizarrely, after he's had this launch, this physical attack on me and I'd managed to run away and lock myself in the bedroom. And then I came out after a little while and I crept back downstairs. Is he still in the house? Yes, he is. He's eating a slice of toast, having a cup of tea, and he's ironing his clothes after assaulting me. Eve is shocked and she tries to go back and, and talk to Morris again, tries to figure out what the hell is going on. Morris had never been violent before, um, so they go outside and they're talking, they start yelling again, and Morris tries to run her over. 
projecting the whole thing onto me, that I was the one who has caused this outburst, you know, because I'm nagging him or whatever. Anyway, he then assaults me again outside and tries to run me over. He leaves the house, and that's the last time he ever came to the family house. He never, ever came back. He never said goodbye to Seb. That was January 2013, and Seb has never seen his father since. So that's almost 10 years. Eve knew in her heart at this moment that the marriage was over. She didn't know why, and she didn't know who this new man was in place of her husband, but she did know it was over. And so began months and months of detective work as Eve tried to piece together these broken shards of her marriage and figure out what the hell had happened. And as it turned out, the person who would help her do that was a receptionist at a car rental agency. He'd hired a car to come from the, the airport and I rung the car hire company and I just explained. I said, I've had an argument with my husband. Um, he's got mental health issues. He's not responding. I just need to know that he's safe. So I need to know, has he returned the car? Because I thought if he has, he's gone back to Oman early. And this lovely lady confirmed that, yes, he had returned the car and that she could definitely confirm it was him because she'd hired a car to him at Christmas. Wait, What? Nah, Morris was apparently in Oman over Christmas, remember? On that extended work trip out in the desert, no reception? Well, that was impossible because he was in Oman at Christmas. He'd been calling me off of the Omani telephone. He'd been emailing me from the Omani email accounts. So no, she was wrong. But no, she wasn't because she could confirm everything, the same credit card, etc. She said, oh, I remember him distinctly because he'd emailed ahead several times to say he wanted to hire the most expensive and newest car in the fleet. Whereas this time when he's come back, he said he wants the most economical car because it's only to take from A to B. So she she actually gave me the address of where he had registered that car too. The fact that Morris had decided to rent the most expensive car in the fleet in this secretive return home over Christmas made no sense to Eve, but it was really ringing the alarm bells. Now she had the phone number of the house in which Morris was visiting, and this was a big break in her detective work. Thanks, unprofessional car hire lady. So Eve calls the number and pretends to be from the car hire place. She kind of makes up a story, uh, says that she knows Morris and has to check in. And the guy who answers the phone says he's Morris's brother-in-law. Brother-in-law, thinks Eve? That's weird. So I called back and I said, so I know this is going to sound very strange, but I'm puzzled by that. Could you tell me why this man has said he's Morris Gibney's brother-in-law? And she, she says, because he's married to my sister. So... Yeah, can you imagine? So I literally, and, and you know, I, 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 I've, I've gone over this bit so many times, I remember it virtually sort of, you know, word for word. And I'm getting married to your sister. And my friend who's meant to be taking notes is like just open-mouthed, you know, pen mid-air going, married to the sister. And I'm going, yeah, married to your sister. Um, and she says, yeah. And then she says, who are you though? Because Morris doesn't have any sisters called Eve. So I say, no, I'm not his sister. I'm his wife. And then it was her turn and she's going, his wife? I'm saying, yeah, I'm his wife. You're his wife? Yes, I'm his wife. And this is how it went on. I cannot even really imagine secrecy of this level. Full disclosure, I've cheated on relationships before. 
And they were just horrible little pockets of time where it was just full of lies and deceit and hating yourself. And it could never last more than a few months before I had to end it because it was just so unbearable. You know, I would either break up with the person or I'd end the affair, but something had to change. But not Morris. He had been doing this for years. He'd created this whole other life for himself. And that life came with all of this flotsam and jetsam. It had an extended family and a wife and all these other bits of web that existed on the other side of town from where he lived with his wife and his son. It's just mind-boggling. Her name was Susan. This was the other woman. She was a teacher in Oman. Blonde, middle-aged, nothing out in the ordinary. But now that Eve had a face and a name, she felt like she needed to know for certain whether or not they were married. At this point, everything happens pretty quickly. Eve heads onto Facebook and she starts digging around. She goes to Morris's extended family. Uh, She notices that they've been, all of them, in Oman at a wedding. And so she confronts them. They lie. They say it was someone else's wedding. She digs around in various family members' Facebook pages and bingo, she finds Susan's Facebook page. Suzanne Prudhoe. So I click on Suzanne Prudhoe's name. It takes me to her Facebook page and her profile picture is her on her wedding day. You know, lovely, what looked like a vintage old bridal dress, a tiara, hair in a chignon, you know, looking up adoringly into the eyes of her bridegroom. Who was Morris? And that's how I found out. That was confirmation. I asked Eve her first thought when she saw this photograph. I couldn't believe what I was seeing, Maggie, you know. I just couldn't believe it because I thought, okay, this looks like him, but in a way it doesn't look like him. You know, the way he was dressed was not the way he was would have dressed when he was with me. You know, and I remember thinking... His eyebrows are really dark. Has he dyed his eyebrows? That was like one of the first things I thought of. Once the shock wore off, Eve was livid, furious. All those years supporting him and remaining faithful, trying to work through his apparent depression and what, all for this? A secret wedding? What ensued was a long and traumatic legal battle. Not just to get divorced, but to charge Morris with bigamy. Yep. Eve went there. In case you don't know, bigamy is the legal term for an illegal marriage that happens when you marry someone and you're still married to someone else. In the UK, being charged with bigamy can actually land you up to seven years in prison. It's a pretty serious offence. For the sake of brevity, I'll have to skip over some of what happens next, but let's just say there was lots of detective work on Eve's behalf, um, hunting through receipts and emails and finding secret folders on his computer, all kinds of clues that I guess started to put together a picture of what had happened. But parallel to all of this work, Eve is still trying to raise her teenage son, Seb. And that brought with it a whole new heartache. I asked Eve whether or not she told him straight away about his dad. There were so many emotions, you know, going on at the time. And obviously you want to protect your child. And whereas I've always brought the children up in the most honest way I possibly could, I knew at this juncture I couldn't tell him the truth. I couldn't tell him the truth because if I told him the truth, 
Not only was it that sense of abandonment by his father and by his extended family, his grandmother, his aunts, his cousins, and, you know, a couple of cousins he was close to, but it was also his sister who had been bridesmaid at, at dad's bigamous wedding. And so it wasn't only the fact that he also had to be sacrificed to enable this wedding to take place without him being there because the most natural thing is is if your dad's going to remarry obviously you're going to he's going to want his children there it was devastating for seb for seb his own stepsister who he'd grown up with had attended the wedding and she hadn't said a thing eve had to balance her own heartache as a woman and a wife with her desire to protect her son to be the mother and the fallout of her husband's actions on their son were immense. So it's issues of, you know, of blame, of self-esteem, of self-worth. Why was he not included in a way, even though morally it would have been wrong? He's still going to have had to process that, you know, and, and it did have an impact on Seb's mental health. Of course it did. I don't think when people read about crimes against the family or when the, the legal system takes on crimes against the family, nobody has any idea of the impact it actually causes on the children that are part of that family. You know, the emotional distress, the psychological, the physical, and how they're going to move forward from that because that's the baggage they're always going to carry. When we decided to do an episode on fidelity, um, it was kind of like this lighthearted thing, weirdly. I guess a lot of it was driven by my own curiosity around parenthood and romance and, you know, those dinner party conversations where you're a bit controversial and go, oh, I don't believe in monogamy. Um, but this this story kind of got to me. It's like I realised the seriousness of infidelity and how it hurts people. You know, there's this weird expectation that you become a parent and that's it, that you don't stray off course. You don't have love affairs or sexy dates or flirty lunches. You just kind of bunker down with your partner and farewell that part of yourself um, just leaning into this kind of sexless role as a parent. Like, why do we have to force ourselves to shut down this major part of what it is to be human, to be attracted to someone else or to feel love for other people? But I guess it was around this part of um, my interview with Eve that I did start to get some answers to those questions. We practice monogamy, it seems, so we don't hurt other people. And as parents, Maybe this ultra-conservative way of romance has come to be because our children are the people we really don't want to hurt. Eve's rejection by Morris wasn't just her own. It was Seb's as well. I think what I had to come to terms with and what was really difficult for me to do so was the fact that I had to realise that I had been coercively controlled. I had been manipulated. Um, I had been gaslighted from the moment I met him. During my detective work, I yeah, I, I, I spoke to other women who had actually coexisted in my marriage from the very beginning and from prior to my marriage. And I discovered he had abused women in that way for so many years. He was having affairs before he met me um, and then all through our relationship. That, says Eve, has been the lasting scar she carries around still to this day. The understanding that she lived for years, 17 years, no more, when they were dating, almost 20 years, with someone that was lying to her. 
I mean, sure, Morris was a master liar. He was an expert at hiding. He was an expert at secrets. But for Eve, she's still left with this knowledge that she didn't pick up on that. I had fallen in love with this man. I had loved this man unconditionally. I had believed that he loved me in the same way. And that's why the issue of trust was never an issue, that he could be working away, I could be living in another country. We trusted each other implicitly. Um, But of course, uh, you know, I was so wrong on that. And I had to ask myself, how, why was I so wrong? Why did I not see red flags? Why did I, why was I not suspicious? And I tortured myself for a long, long time. How could I, this strong, independent, professional woman, be duped by this man? It didn't make any sense to me. In the end, the story went a bit like this. Turns out that Morris and Susan had met in Oman, where she was working as a teacher. After an eight-month romance, they got engaged. And soon after, they got married in a huge, lavish $90,000 wedding. Susan lived in the UK, just 100 miles from Eve's home in Liverpool. Morris did end up in court, being charged with bigamy, but got off on a six-month suspended sentence. To this day, no one actually knows where he is. Eve mentioned something about Korea, maybe, that she'd heard, but that's it. He and Susan are still married. Last year, Eve decided to publish a book about her experience called Face of a Bigamist, and I'll I'll link that in our show notes. At the end of our interview, I ask Eve why she thinks Morris did this. Why didn't he just divorce her, move on with Susan, save everyone, including his son, this extraordinary pain? That is really, truly the million dollar question. I have no idea. And I'd love it if you do, if you, if you, if you air this part of our conversation. If anyone out there knows the answer, get in touch with me because I would love to know what made him do that. At any point, he could have divorced me, you know, at any point, but he chose not to. I think part of it is about control, whether that powers him. And I think that's it. Because when you look at how he had controlled every member of his family, his immediate family, sisters, nieces, mother, brothers, daughter, you know, um, he had controlled them in a certain way to support, um, you know, um, to be complicit in his duplicitous lifestyle. He had controlled me in a different way. He had controlled so many people that it has to be, uh, I don't know, he must be fueled by de- deception and power. It, it gives him power. It has to. I don't know. I mean, I don't know how these people work. Power, secrets, control. These are the dark shadows of romance. In every relationship, there are two sides a Dr. Jekyll and a Mr. Hyde. And some of us do a better job than others of mediating our Mr. Hyde, siphoning away those urges to do the wrong thing. Some of us don't. But I really do believe we all have it within us. We've all got a bit of Morris and a bit of Eve, the story of original sin. I guess the only question is, will you bite the forbidden fruit? Story two, changing the configuration. If Eve's story was all about hidden infidelity, our next story is about, well, 
open infidelity. I interviewed an amazing woman called Tamika Wilder. She's a sexologist who also fell in love whilst married, but unlike Morris, explored this new relationship with the blessing of her partner. Tamika's pretty well known in the sexology space. Uh, She's become kind of ground zero for mothers wanting to rediscover their sexuality. But, you know, don't get the idea she's some airy-fairy, crunchy woman. <laughs> she's she's pretty no-nonsense, actually. She's the type of woman who, minutes into the conversation, really makes it clear that she means business. And when she talks about sexuality, Tamika doesn't mean gay or straight or bisexuality. When she says sexuality, she means what you like, who you like it with, how it sits within your relationship. And herein is what sets Tamika apart, not from everyone, but from a large amount of couples. Tamika is in an open relationship and for one period of her life, lived in one house with her husband, her boyfriend and her two sons. I'm Tamika Wilder. I'm 37. I'm a somatic sexologist uh, in the Byron Shire, currently living with my five-year-old and eight-year-old and my partner. We've just moved in all together, actually, the four of us. So it's a fairly new arrangement. Uh, My partner's 10 years my junior and we run our business together too. The business is called The Orgasmic Mama. Tamika is a well-known sex educator who works with a lot of mums. I founded The Orgasmic Mama um, and it started out as me being a sex coach and and sexologist for mums. And so you know, someone who gives a lot of permission to mums to experience their sexuality, to reconnect with their sexuality, to learn the things that we never learn in school. So here's something they don't teach you in school. Breaking the rules. Because here's the thing. Tamika fell in love twice. Overlapping. And while most people, that looks like infidelity or an affair. But it was different for Tamika because she and her partner are polyamorous. So unlike Eve, who has written a book about her experience, um, I'm not going to mention Tamika's partner's names to keep them private. So we're going to make up a few names. Uh, We're going to call Tamika's first partner, the father of her two sons. Let's call him Harry. And her new boyfriend, who she lives with now, is going to be Rob. So when I met um, the father of my two kids, one of the first sentences that came out of my mouth was, yes, like, I want to be with you and it won't be just you. It, I was very clear from the beginning of our relationship that I had polyamorous or open relating values and it was something that was like a non-negotiable in, in terms of my relating style. Um, and so that kind of flung us into a whole world of you know, not fully understanding what that meant at the time. And it really seemed like the more freedom and agility we gave one another, the closer and closer we became. Um, and then we had our children and, you know, we lived together, obviously. We lived together in that way for 10 or almost 11 years. And then she met Rob. In 2018, I went to a Tantra festival. Um, I travelled from Melbourne up to the Byron Shire. Um, I met this person who is my partner now and I came home back to the father of my kids and I told him all about this person that I'd met and I'd said you know I'm not willing to not see this person again like there's something there with us and it's a thread that I want to follow and so we kept relating um long distance for a while and then um 
yeah, he eventually moved down to Melbourne and into our family home. I asked Tamika what that first meeting was like. Yeah, it was a little bit awkward, but like friendly. I was nervous. I was like, oh my God, I can't believe this is the moment that you guys are going to meet each other. But in full trust, I'm like, they're adult people, they can take care of themselves, they'll have whatever version of the conversation they need to have. I know that everything that we did and who we are is underpinned with like deep self-responsibility, compassion, self-awareness and respect for one another. So like, how bad can it be, right, with all of those things as the operating system? That really does bring me back to the, the, the piece where it is like robust internal work to like get down to the business of polyamorous relating because you've got to take full yeah responsibility for who you are and how you're showing up so they were okay they were great they had dinner at home together shared some jokes and slowly but surely the energy of the room warmed up I just would have loved to be a fly on the wall here (laughs) there's something in me that just cannot imagine how this situation went down but it did and everyone got along and that was kind of it In time, Rob moved in. He moved into the spare room of the family home and suddenly the family grew to be two dads, one mum and two little boys. It was a gradual process. Like I think we actually hung out with the kids once or twice on our own and then the the two dadders hung out on their own and then it would be all five of us and we just kind of like stepped it in gradually because he came for visits before coming to move in. There were some visits. It wasn't like, ah, I'm on your doorstep and now like I live with you. Yeah, so it was a gradual thing. As the new living arrangements started to settle in, Tamika says it was really important for everyone that there was lots of conversations. Lots and lots and lots and lots of conversations. So the three of us had lots of conversations. The communication in the the open relating piece is huge. Like a lot of people find it quite exhausting and you've got to be really on top of it. So making sure you're kind of digging into unsaids and making sure that you're speaking to what your needs are and making sure that you're not overriding your boundaries and making sure you're taking care of yourself and each other. It's a lot. The response from friends and family, says Tamika, was initially a little surprised. But pretty quickly, they all became super supportive. They could see how well it was all working. Her sons didn't feel weird about it, and that was the main thing. They actually kind of loved it. And so did she. Tamika says that for the time that they were all living together, the house kind of took on a life of its own, this living, breathing organism where everything just worked. So, like, it was just the same as a regular relationship but with extra people. We'd some days look at each other like, oh, my God, like, this is awesome. That might be a night where, you know, we're making Mexican and the kids are happy and it's, we're having friends over and we're just grooving all together. And then there's other days where it's like, uh, what the fuck are we doing? This is hard. The kids loved having like two father figures actually there's like three parents to two kids which is amazing like you can imagine having an extra like someone's playing with them someone's finishing up their work and someone's cooking dinner okay so here's the hot question what does an ordinary day look like for a polyamorous family of five so get up in the morning get upstairs me and baby daddy would usually make lunch get the boys ready to go to, to school and to play group or whatever. My partner might 
be upstairs for a little bit longer or opt into a little bit of work or do whatever he was doing. You know, we just kind of work out the logistics and and share some of the logistics. It was kind of the same after school time. It's like, oh, where are you? I'm going past there. I'll grab this one, you grab that one. Who's doing dinner? And then the same with dinner time. It'd be like, oh, can you please go up and do the bedtime or I'll do it or yeah. So we just negotiate those big, those parenting moments that are like, oh, we're gonna do this again today. <laughs> um, we would share those. And then there was one night every week where no matter what was happening, myself and my boyfriend would go out together. We would go out for dinner or go out on a date night. I asked Tamika if she went on date nights with the boy's dad as well. No, she said they had 10 years of date nights behind them. Uh, What was important to her at this moment was growing a new relationship with Rob. And then I had to ask, I know you're all thinking it, did the three of them ever, you know, Tamika was very firm on this, I'll have you know, and the answer is no, 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 no. Everything was separate. This was not a throuple. It was one woman having two relationships simultaneously. So we've got a pretty good idea about how this was working for the adults, but what about the kids? Like, how do you explain this new routine? Um, My daughter gets upset if I try and use a new shampoo on her. But Tamika and Harry and Rob kind of took on this approach not to dumb down the situation, but to find a way to talk with them that was truthful and made sense. I guess it's just the same as like the sex education piece for kids. It's like age appropriate information. So I would just say mum mum has a boyfriend. This is mum's boyfriend. Um, And I love him and I love Dada and I love you. They're like, okay. You know, any input that is like, oh, that's wrong or not okay or or confusing. That's all from us. Like that wasn't there with them. That was, that's from the adults. So I kept it really open for them to ask whatever questions they want and for them to have any comments that they have. And um, it also helped that actually where we lived at the time, we had a, we had a single parent family. We had a family with two mums and two kids. We had a family with two dads and one kid. Yeah, we had all of the rainbow representation like around us. So I would say, you know how those guys have two daddies and those guys have two mamas? Well, we have three. We have two daddies and one mama. And they're like, okay. So the checklist is like this. The kids are happy. The neighbours aren't peeking through the curtains. Uh, Tamika's family were cool. Everyone's getting along. So I was pretty curious, you know, what happened? Why did this stop working? When did she leave? And she says that for starters, it was a first for all of them. We hadn't had formed relationships at any other time. We'd had lots of flings and we'd had, you know, physical interactions with people, no relationships. Secondly, it's really important to know that this all happened just before COVID struck. So Tamika, Rob and Harry and the kids were all navigating some pretty major relationship shifts during two years of almost constant home lockdown with two little kids. It's pretty big stuff to be locked in a house and figure out. Um, But by the time the lockdowns lifted in 2021, Tamika knew that something had to change. It just, it wasn't working for her anymore. That space she was really desperately missing, it had become a lot smaller when suddenly no one could leave the house. She decided she wanted a bedroom of her own, alone. 
Rules and boundaries were very important and, you know, there were times where they weren't as respected as they really needed to be. It's so funny looking back at this. I'm like, it was actually quite easeful a lot of the time. Like in it, it didn't feel super easeful, but yeah, looking back, you know, there were some times where I would choose like what bed I would sleep in, which actually got a bit annoying for me because I felt like I didn't have a bedroom. At one point I was like, Mm. oh, I'm either sleeping in that bed or that bed. And I'm like, you know, where's my space? And that was actually a big part of why then he, he, my partner ended up moving out. Um, My boyfriend ended up moving out because I, I needed my space back. But yeah, there are definitely agreements and rules and boundaries and like constant communication about what's needed, what's required, what's wanted. Eventually it became too much. But there's no like crescendo. There's no moment where it's like, this is the icing on the cake. I just know that I wanted to continue living in my values, like in my relational values. And so it's like, well, if something difficult comes up, then I either navigate that or I stop being in this type of relationship. And my choice was always to navigate, to always weather the storm, you know, to always up level again and get better at how we were doing it. There were times when the family and that relationship and the, the intimacy and friendship and flow and connection and conversation there inside of the family unit was far more important and prioritised over other times or other people or other things. And then there were times where I I would have a relationship with my boyfriend, but then also I would want erotic connection or sexual connection with another couple of people. And that was for me, you know, maybe I wanted to have a certain type of kink play with a certain type of person that I know could give me something. And then I would go on dates with um, a woman if I wanted a certain type of something. So yeah, there's all different types of connection to navigate. And yes, it can be hard to feel like everything's equal. And so with a lot of careful consideration and just care in general, Tamika and the two boys moved interstate to the Byron Shire, where they're still living today. As it turned out, Boyfriend Rob also moved up, and in what Tamika says was pretty much just a logistical move, he moved into her home. So now Rob and Tamika and the kids all live together. Um, The kid's dad, Harry, still sees the boys all the time, obviously, and is involved with family stuff. They all still hang out. I asked Tamika if she and Harry would still be considered together or whether they broke up. And it was really funny in this moment Um, She sort of gave me this wry smile and I went, "Uh uh-huh, okay. I I kind of realised I did that thing again that I keep trying to do, which is squish her relationship into a shape I might understand, putting a label on it. Being able to put a label on it. People, like, adore being able to go, okay, let me understand this. It's like, "Mm, firstly, I don't need anyone to understand anything about the way we operate I had so many people like oh so you guys are separated now it's like who needs that label you need it for you I'm like well I don't know what does separation mean to you what does breakup mean to you what does an interlude mean to you that's generally my response to that kind of thing because the setup that we have and the way that we operate could be wildly different to you She's right, obviously. The words we use to describe our relationships are so specific to our own relationships. Like, a good relationship to me might be a terrible relationship to you. Or an unfair act by someone else's partner might be perceived by someone else as totally okay. 
And the great thing is that it doesn't actually matter to anyone else except for the people involved. So I guess Tamika, in her own way, was telling me to mind my own business. Not only that, but that daring to do something different from the normal nuclear setup, well, it's actually more common than most people think. It is very different to the status quo. It is, you know, it's not seen very often and it's certainly not talked about very much. But you'd be so surprised the more you talk about it. People are like, oh, yeah, I did that with my husband. And it's like, oh, yeah, we go to swingers. And actually, the amount of conversations I've had with people like in the primary school playground or whatever, and they're like, oh, my God, I could not wait to talk to you about this. They finally can just like release the valve. I think the difference with me is that I'm just willing to talk about it. I'm willing to put it out there. Tamika grew up knowing that she felt differently about relationships and sex than most people. She had a stinging curiosity to know what lay on the other side of the rules she was being taught about who and how we should love. Tamika is a sexual assault survivor and finding a way home to her body was an important part of her journey. And whilst this is far from the only reason that Tamika is a sexologist, it is a big part of why she loves to work reconnecting women with their bodies and, like her, finding a way to love sex again. Like, really love sex. Yeah, I feel like my whole life I've had a sign on my head that says safe person to talk about sex with. And seriously, like, I say that sentence a lot because it's true. It's been a huge part of my curiosity and my world and my life's work for a very long time. Polyamory, says Tamika, was something that came up for her right at the start of her dating life. I was never in like a regular monogamous relationship. Like I would always want to be relating with multiple people at once, but I didn't have the language or the tools to say, hey, boyfriend at the time, like I want to go over here for a little bit. So I would just go over there and cheat or I would just go over there and be like, I really want to make out with you and I'm not allowed to because my boyfriend said, and this is like a chart, you know, I'm in that kind of child phase of life essentially when I'm doing that. So, you know, that's a clue. At the end of our interview, I asked Tamika what it felt like to live in a really self-aligned way. Like, what's it like to wake up in the morning and really love the life that you're living? Feels like the best day of your ovulation when you're walking down the sidewalk and you're just like feeling great, looking great, your head's held high, you've got amazing posture, your skin is glowing and you're just parting the crowd in front of you and people look at you like, oh my God, what's she got? I can, what's she got over there? And it's called being alive. (laughs) Um, It feels like that, but instead of receiving that from the outside in, you actually feel yourself with it. I mean, God, if that's not enough to convince someone to live an authentic life, I don't know what is. There's so much joy in Tamika. I was struck when I was speaking to her, actually, just how different her story is from Eve's. I wonder if in a parallel universe, you know, like Morris might have spoken to Eve about how he was feeling and I don't know, maybe if he was given the space to explore that, um, things wouldn't have gone so badly. I don't know. Tamika, in any case, is living proof that falling in love while you're in a relationship doesn't have to spell disaster. She just calls it changing the configuration. Yeah, we've just changed the configuration. We've changed the the living configuration. And the boy's dad is here, like, all the time. We're all really close friends. My boyfriend and the boy's dad, they hang out and go for walks and give each other hugs. And, yeah, so we just changed the configuration. 
So, what do you think? It's a bit of a pickle, isn't it? You know, like Eve's story really does make me think twice about this kind of flippant approach to monogamy that I have. But then you hear from Tamika and, I don't know, you kind of see that there is alternative ways of living. Anyway, fidelity is a spicy topic at the best of times. You throw in the added complexity of parents and infidelity and it becomes explosive. But we're not robots and we're not perfect. Eve shows us firsthand what it can look like when you're not honest about how you feel. And Tamika, well, she's basically the poster girl for how good it can look when you do come from a place of honesty. Here's what I'm learning. Life continues on around parenthood, kind of snaking its way in and out like a river. The best you can do is just go with it. Be honest. If your river changes direction, follow it. Talk about it. Don't try and hide the fact that you might be in too deep or drowning. But most of all, you know, just be kind to yourself. We're all doing our best. And I think the more I talk to parents about something like fidelity, the more I realize that so much of our experience is tied up in guilt and this imaginary role as a good person and a good parent. If you'd like to read more about Eve's experience, her book Face of a Bigamist is on sale now and you can see more from her at www.evegibney.com. If you would like to see more from Tamika, head to www.theorgasmicmama.com or find her on Instagram at theorgasmicmamas with an S. This has been a Super Real production. Parent Kind is produced by Julian Morgans and our executive producer is Rachel Tuffrey. Our sound design and original music composition is by Jimmy Saunders and our theme song is sung by Louisa Rankin. The show has been edited by Jimmy Saunders and Patrick O'Farrell and our artwork is by Ben Thompson. Thanks for listening to our show. <laughs>